The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Okay, welcome back to the uh, second half of the second lecture. Here we're going to take this uh, beautiful example of uh, uh, an algorithm which the cellular machinery applies to get from DNA to RNA to protein and show uh, a, a simple example where that uh, is, incorpor is incorporated into a program very similar to what you'd be doing on your palm set. So here, uh, we've got it nicely color-coded. This is uh, unrelated, of course, to your, uh, the, the color coding and the genetic code we've been using so far, but it, inc it includes the, the genetic code. This is, uh, you can see the comments here are preceded by this little uh, number sign. Um, we go from the genome, a DNA sequence, uh, which is a string. Strings are one of the things that Perl does very well. Uh, it's not the only string manipulation programming language, but it's a particularly easy one. And so here's how easy it is to enter a DNA sequence. One of the many ways of entering DNA sequence. You can bring it in from a file. Here it is as part of the code. Um, you translate it, uh, sorry, you transcribe it into RNA in silico here uh, by the simple command where you say uh, RNA sequence is uh, equal to DNA sequence, and then you substitute all the T's for U's um, globally. That's what this uh, uh, 12th line is on slide 23. Now off the side here is a reminder that it's really much more complicated than that. There's all these proteins involved in doing it accurately and uh, with regulation and so forth. But for the sake of this Perl program, this is quite sufficient to get us to, to a, an RNA sequence, which we can then translate and here the translation process um, uh, uses, it start, it, it's going to be a cycle. So uh, in, a, in a sense, the cycle in the RNA sequence where you put in one nucleotide at a time is, 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 a, is, is all compact here. It's all just substitute every T for U. Here we're going to have a more explicit loop, this while loop. Uh, you can see it's indented. Everything within the loop that's going to be iterated is offset a bit. And what you're going to be doing is, is looking in groups of three. That's what this three is on line 17, is, a, uh, is looking through the position you are in the RNA and taking a chunk of three at a time. The chunk here is a substring, a substring and you, call, you do a pull out a codon as that, as that substring, and then you do a translation. So now this is a sense representing the modularity of biology and the modularity of good programming code, is you put the, uh, this whole business of translating in a separate part of the program so you don't have to embed the code everywhere uh, that's going to be used. And the translation here is that simple table. So this subroutine, SUB, line 22, again indented all the code in the subroutine. It goes off the uh, bottom of the slide and down and through the floor of uh, all the different uh, cases. 
Now we could list 64 cases for the 64 trinucleotides, or we can use the more compact string manipulation that you can do in Perl to indicate a dot means any kind of uh, character after G and C would return alanine. So G, C, A, C, G, or U. And then for cysteine, which has two possibilities, so that's four possibilities represented by the dot, and cysteine has two possibilities, it's either UGC or UGU, where the vertical line means or. And you get the idea. There's a whole uh, very compact syntax here for um, doing the translation. And that's how we do uh, one of the cleaner, more simple algorithms in, in computational biology. And now I'm going to make it complicated again. Um, by, by first, uh, to set the stage for how the genetic code is not universal, we have to explain by what we, what we might mean by it being universal. This is the ultimate pedigree on, this, on uh, <coughs> slide 24 here, is in principle some very simple organism, possibly a, an RNA-based organism, that may have made a proto-ribosome that may have done protein synthesis or may have done some other chemical reaction at, its pep at what is now a peptidyl uh, transferase site. Something along this line, it's speculated by some biologists, what was the common ancestor of all living um, species, all living cells. And uh, certainly by the time we started getting branching of the three major brands, bacteria, the archaebacteria, and the eukaryotes, um, by the time we get to that point, <coughs> there was a, a probably a ribosome set of genes that encodes all the proteins and RNAs of the ribosome, and these were shared. And then the, at each uh, cell division, you, you split off two cells that were slightly different from one another. As they would mutate and differentiate and, and be selected, they would generate the huge diversity of organisms, which you see here. Now, this is a directed acyclic graph in the sense that you, don't, you can't have a descendant of the, in this process being an ancestor uh, of, of, of one of its parents. Um, so time has it as an axis going uh, up in this case, uh, unlike some of the more physics-based diagrams we had before. And as you branch out uh, to existing uh, species, you see that, that uh, things like plants have actually inheritance, not just along this direct tree-like uh, structure, but you've got more of a network-like structure where some of the genomic material came in from one of the bacterial branches uh, long ago. And this has uh, recently been uh, put on very firm footing on a genomic scale in an article this month uh, where the bacterial genome of uh, cyanobacteria, these are blue-green algae that fix uh, carbon in, uh, uh, in all the oceans, and, plant, and the simplest plant that's been sequenced is Arabidopsis, um, a weed, and anyway, the, the, the DNA from the bacteria has not only gone into the chloroplast, which is an organelle, which has a, a re very reduced genome, but it's been spread through thousands of genes in the nucleus, which is the major place where all the chromosomes are for the plants. And so this is, has, has um, this possibly symbiotic relationship has resulted in a complicated inheritance. And this, is, and this is not unique. Another one coming in from the purple bacteria has been incorporated into a separate membrane-bound organelle, which provides the, the ATP for, for uh, both plants and uh, non-photosynthetic uh, organisms, multicellular organisms, animals. And, 
And I, these two errors, there could be, there could be thousands of errors, arrows going over long periods of time at deep branches, and we know there are many interconnecting arrows in recent times in a, almost all these organisms, or many, certain representatives from all over this tree, can take up DNA in various ways, can even mate with uh, organisms of various species, and exchange DNA and incorporate it. And so it's not this simple tree, but it is certainly um, um, going forward in time. It is directed and acyclic in that uh, regard. So how many living species are there? So we're building to the point, connecting back to the central dogma, of how many different genetic codes are there. So we need to know how many species there are. If you take a gram of, you know, thumb, thumbnail of uh, uh, soil from a, any of a variety of different soils that have been tested, you can find about 5,000 bacterial species. Well, what does it mean to be a species? In animals, it typically means that they don't produce fertile offspring when they interbreed two different species. But there are books full of exceptions of this, even in animals. In bacteria, of course, where they exchange DNA all over the place, as I said, it breaks down even more. So a working definition that many biologists adopt is that if two uh, microbial species share 20% of their DNA, if you take their DNA align it by algorithms, such as the ones we we've, will be using in this course, and you find that 70% of the base pairs are conserved, then they're the same species. Otherwise, they're different species. And uh, there are millions of non-microbial species, many of which harbor microbial species. Uh, this number is dropping slightly because of our, um, uh, you know, our inability to, to re restrain our growth and, and other uh, activities that cause uh, speciation, species extinction. Um, and uh, the number of whole genomes is getting closer to 100, and the number in the pipeline is, is probably going is, in, is 600 or so, maybe in the thousands with new technologies. And there's over 80,000 species defined by one or more nucleic acid sequences in the NCBI, National Center for Bioinformatics, um, which is the, the, one of the three major nucleic acid databases in the world. <coughs> Why do we study more than one species? The comparison between species allows uh, subtle and not so subtle um, analyses of what, is, what are the important positions to stay constant because they provide some very fundamental biochemical activity, but what are the important ones to vary because they provide some important variants, for example, escaping um, immune surveillance and so on. So there's reasons to be constant, there's reasons to be variable, and reasons to be neutral. So let's now apply, let's go back now and apply this to the genetic code, this particularly simple and elegant, nearly universal code. This is how genetic codes are represented in CBI, one of the ways. And here, the three bases of the codon, bases one, two, and three, uh, remember we said that UUU was phenylalanine encoded by DNA, TTT. So going down from the top on the leftmost column, it's TTT, single letter code F for phenylalanine. So the amino acids go along the bottom uh, row of this, of this table, and you can see that all the amino acids are represented. Stars represent stop codons, which are not recognized by transfer RNAs, but by proteins called release factors that simulate the function of the transfer RNA and cause a release of this cyclic uh, incorporation of amino acids into polypeptides. Um, 
Now this is the standard code, uh, so-called, uh, where you have one methionine here in the middle here, encoded by um, ATG, and three stop codons and all the rest. Here's where it gets complicated. There are over 22 different uh, genetic codes. Some of the changes from the standard code are indicated here in blue. Um, you have here, for example, for the vertebrate mitochondrial code, this is the code actually used in every cell in your body for the subset of the cell that is the powerhouse that makes ATP, the mitochondria that we talked about before, which was uh, part of the vertical transmission, the horizontal transmission of information from purple bacteria long ago. Well, anyway, the stop code, normal stop codon is now tryptophan, abbreviated W. Um, there's an extra methionine, and there's two extra stop codons, which are replacing what would have been an arginine in the standard code. And you can see there's little blues all over the place, changes in the number of, the, where you can start, the start sites are indicated by three, uh, one to three starts in the standard code. And uh, when you talk about the, the starts, you start getting to uh, uh, what's the, how much do you favor that particular start? What other signals are, are required to start at that particular position? It's not as simple as just having an ATG trinucleotide to get a start of protein synthesis. You need other nucleic acid components. Anyway, you can deal with, it's still, it's a slightly more complicated algorithm. You have to know exactly what organelle and what organism you're dealing with, but you can apply the same kind of uh, computer code that we had a couple of slides back. But now we get into even more complicated. And part of the reason I'm showing you this early on, some of these things would not be in your textbooks. Uh, for the first biology course, and they would not be in a first computational biology um, lecture or two. Um, but I do this so that you'll have a healthy distrust of everything that you read and everything you hear, including everything you hear from me. Um, and this should really make you uh, distrust the genetic code, because what these ribosomes do in this particular sequence, which has been well, well documented um, eight years ago, is that they will hop over 50 nucleotides. They're not hopping, they're not going three nucleotides at a time as they should. In fact, it's not even an integral multiple of three nucleotides. It is literally coming to a stop codon, and rather than stopping, if it has just the right sequence context, including this complicated RNA secondary structure called a pseudonaut, the RNA folds up the messenger, which really should just be a messenger, which, you know, computers should just be recognizing uh, or the biological, biochemical computer, as the ribosome, should be recognizing three nucleotides at a time. Instead, it's recognizing a morphology. This thing folds up, and no longer is an informational molecule, it is a morphological uh, recognition element. Anyway, when it finds that, it skips over 50 nucleotides, skips over the stop codon, and uh, makes a perfectly, otherwise perfectly normal protein. So, don't even trust dogma. Especially don't trust dogma. Central dogma included, okay? Plenty of, uh, of counterexamples. Now we're going to move from this very, very simple um, example of an algorithm where we can model proteins directly from the nucleic acids that come out of DNA sequences wholesale. We now want to ask, how do we get the qu more quantitative data, which comes out of functional genomics rather than classical sequence sequencing, how do we get that into qualitative models 
and then get the qualitative models then repopulated with additional quantitative data to make a, a full uh, model. Now, in order to say, came up earlier as a question, what, you know, what is the function of a gene product? Um, we go, we dip into qualitative statements which are made in the literature, um, which have various ways of representing the evidence for this. Some of them very convoluted arguments, some of them um, very casual. But when they're, when they are, when an attempt is made to put these into a database or a data structure as representative, gross oversimplification of the literature, this is what often comes out, something like this, where you'll have a hierarchical table. Here, I've blown up one of the levels of the hierarchy. You can think of it as a list where the list may not be in a particularly logical order, but the hierarchy is so that under metabolism would be some covalent change in substrates which enzymes would, would uh, catalyze. And then you have information transfer we've been talking about, like the, ribos the DNA to RNA to protein, the biopolymers. Regulation of information transfer or of metabolism would be have all these four subheadings, type of regulation, trigger, and so on. And then transport in these various other processes. Each of these functions, such as illustrated by uh, these references here, um, can be used in a, uh, in a way of connecting all the new information we get to some sort of uh, systematic uh, best guess, best estimate of encapsulation of the literature. Another example of this, in addition to the, the MIPS uh, for yeast, is gene ontology, which is uh, derived from the word ontology, or nature of being. And the objective of GEO, for abbreviation of gene ontology, is to provide a control vocabulary um, my vocabulary during this lecture has been uncontrolled, okay, uh, as you've probably guessed. Uh, but when you start talking about, I have pointed out the prob problems that you get into when you casually refer to gene expression when you really mean RNA expression and refer to genes as protein coding entities when you really mean protein or RNA encoding entities. That process of being more precise about our use of terms, at least when we're communicating with computers, is very important. We communicate with each other you guys will give me a little slack, some of you, and, uh, but computers won't. They will misinterpret every chance they get. And uh, so that's what control of vocabulary is all about. And you'll have three different, they, the inventors of gene ontology, uh, class of, have a hierarchy including molecular function, biological processes, and cellular component, which we'll expand upon in the next slide. Cautionary note, whenever you do modeling or you will be assumptions, in this case, some of the assumptions exclude vast parts of biology, which are listed here uh, as part of their uh, documentation. Uh, they have things that are not modeled in the gene ontology are domain structure and three-dimensional structure, um, which obviously has played a big role in the, in the two lectures so far. Um, the evolution and uh, gene expression. These, we've already talked about the phylogenetic uh, tree of evolution and the gene expression will be a big topic in, in the RNA and proteomics part of this course. The small molecules we've, we've illustrated today, almost everything in this course is, seems to be excluded from the gene ontology. Nevertheless, uh, here we go with just one uh, slide talking about the functions. We have molecular function, 
what the gene product can do without specifying where or when. A broad example of this would be enzyme, uh, something that catalyzes, and then a very specific example of an enzyme would be adenylate cyclase, something that makes a, a cycle in the ribose uh, of adenylate. This, uh, so both of these fall under the molecular function when you're describing a function of a, a protein in, in a, describing a genome. A biological process has to have more than one step. If it's one step, it's not a process. Uh, it has to have a, t a time component typically, and there's a transformation that occurs. Examples of signal transduction is a broad biological process. An example of signal transduction is cyclic AMP biosynthesis. The cellular component would be somehow reflecting this assembly to organelle that we were talking about earlier. And here, an example, uh, you'd have a ribosomal protein being part of a, of a ribosome. So it gets you some idea of the components. So molecular function, biological process, and components. Now, as I said, this gene ontology is based on facts. The facts uh, that, that are included, it's not, ideally there would be a direct logical connection between the facts that are summarized in the hierarchical gene ontology and the raw data that came out of some instrument. That is not the case. This is all from the literature and it's done on a uh, low budget. Wow. And, uh, and examples of how they summarize it is it's inferred from a mutant phenotype. This is or a genetic interaction. So these two are genetic. Or a physical interaction. This, you know, this passes for biophysics. Um, Sequence similarity. Now we're starting, as we go down this list, we're starting to get into murkier and murkier uh, evidence. Sequence similarity, as you'll see in a subsequent slide, um, has uh, problems. Um, direct a, a direct assay um, can, could be a physical interaction. It could be some other uh, biochemical assay. Expression pattern uh, might be evidence of... Uh, of uh, some of the associations that were mentioned in the, in the gene ontology. Now we get to electronic annotation. In a certain sense, all of these things uh, are electronic annotation. Sequence similarity might be a way that you automatically get electronic annotation. Then you get to a traceable author statement. This means that someone said that something is true without saying how he, know, he or she knows it's true. Uh, so we're getting really murky. And the murkiest of all is non-traceable <laughs> author statement. You don't even know who said that something might be true. Okay. Let's go back up to the top of that. In fact, go beyond the top of it, where we now will start tracking the data from the instruments to uh, statements. And hopefully, in, the, in this course, you will um, uh, see how we will, in the future and present, be, uh, make models in a rigorous way where you can track it all the way back to data. So one class, the most obvious class of data collection, is what I would call direct observation, typically through a microscope. And here's a particularly powerful case. I promised you earlier that we would, you know, talk about how you have 959 cells in the non-gonadal cell lineage of the worm. It starts as a single cell up here at the top middle, a fertilized egg, as this egg-shaped thing at the top, and then it splits off way off to the left and off to the right. And that makes two cells, two stem cells that are capable of differentiating or, and dividing further. And they make 
Uh, they each make two more, and it keeps going. But you can see it, start, it starts getting uh, get symmetry breaking almost immediately. In fact, the egg itself is an asymmetric um, entity. Um, and you start getting lineages that will either die uh, as they terminate, or they will just stop dividing. And uh, eventually you end up with, uh, after about a thousand cell divisions or so, you end up with these 959 um, non-gadal cells. Okay, and this, is, this lineage has been completely mapped out by direct microscopic observation where a series of photographs, you can show that this single cell turns into these two cells. So you have a time axis and you have a lineage axis, which is one of these directed acyclic graphs. Okay. In addition, and even more amazing, to me anyway, is that you have a complete neural connection for this multicellular organism. It has a fairly simple brain, uh, if you've ever had a conversation with one of these things. But uh, it still has, uh, uh, each uh, neuron ha can have um, dozens to hundreds of, of uh, connections, and these have been mapped by a serial section through the entire worm very thin sections, and electron microscopy, and then checking out the whole wiring diagram. This is a really a tour de force. And part of the reason it's possible, this would even be hard to do in a variety of organisms, but this is another case where biology cooperates, just like with the genetic code. In this particular organism, that lineage happens the same way every time. Uh, in, in even slightly more complicated organisms like the Drosophila fruit fly or humans, uh, the, the lineages are not so strict, and uh, a cell uh, can take on a number of different directions uh, depending on the exact uh, physical environment it finds itself in. But nevertheless, for this one, the neural connections are reproducible, and the cell lineage is reproducible, and so you can map this all out. For other organisms, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try it. It just means that you'll have to represent it in a slightly less uh, fixed pattern. You'll have to represent it as a probabilistic set of divisions and probabilistic set of neural connections and maybe even conditional upon what on various conditions. Okay, that's direct observation as a class of source of data for, for uh, modeling. Here's three other sources of data. In each case I've shown pretty raw representations of the data. Um, you can think of these all as representing an intensity readout um, um, with uh, some sort of separation as the, uh, uh, as the, as the uh, horizontal axis, or in some case, both axes. So the intensity here is indicated by a, a line plot of four different color fluorophores in an electrophoretic separation, um, which is the basis for the genomic sequencing that we're, that we're so uh, proud of here. Um, then for... Uh, so here the detection is fluorescence of the, of the terminated uh, chains of DNA. We'll get to that uh, later in the course. Here you have mass spectrometry where you're measuring differences in masses. Um, even more accurately than in, in sequencing, you're separating nucleic acids by their differences in mass to about one part in 1,000. The mass spectrometry is more like one part in 10,000 or even better um, because here you're separating in a gas phase based on... Uh, the electrical and magnetic properties. Here you're separating um, by charge in a liquid phase and liquid and gel phase. Uh, each of these you can, you can specify the, the throughput per day or your throughput per, per unit dollar. This, is, this becomes important in planning these, these structures. The third 
uh, category here is arrays. These can be arrays of, of nucleic acids for quantitating RNAs or arrays of uh, antibodies, proteins, small molecule chemicals, which we can quantitate the binding of one kind of molecule to an array of other molecules. Uh, in each of, in the, both the top and the bottom, you can have multiple colors, and these can be used um, quantitatively as internal standards so that you can um, monitor this process. So we're going to go into this in great detail later on, but I want to give you a feeling for where the source of these things are. This array analysis, in a sense, is another example of microscopy. Just like in the previous slide, we used direct observation microscopy to, to monitor cell lineages, so too we can do it, we can make a, uh, uh, it's just, you know, it's just wonderful that the battery is charged, okay. okay. We can take the uh, microscopy of artificial uh, patterns such as arrays. Just as we have separation here by mass, we can also have separation on a variety of other properties, sometimes called multidimensional separation. Uh, this gets back to the first slide of the, of the lecture, which, is, uh, which was the purification aspect. Now, how do we jump from that kind of raw data to these uh, common way that uh, biologists communicate in journals where you have circles and arrows where the circles might be some kind of protein molecule, such as a stat, uh, and uh, arrow indicates some sort of interaction or regulation or quantitative uh, influence that one protein has on another, or a protein, uh, or s so the note, in alternative diagrams, the nodes could be small molecules, and the, the edges, the links between the nodes, could be an enzymatic reaction catalyzed by a protein. There are about 500 biological databases that we'll talk about in the database talk. Um, how the data and models were entered into these databases is a, is a uh, huge uh, issue. Many of them have been done very casually. For DNA sequencing and crystallography, I think the process by which you go from the raw data to the models is very well understood, very well communicated uh, for this sort of thing. It, take, it will take this whole course for us to even to scratch the surface. Here's another example. That one was protein-protein interactions. This is an example where the, the nodes now are not proteins but small molecules, and they're connected by an enzymatic pathway. This is another example of an application of ordinary differential equations, just like the one in last class. We had uh, exponential growth. Here you have simple fluxes where a a catalytic reaction occurs, not autocatalytic, but catalytic. Uh, there's, no, there's no exponential growth occurring in this um, cell. It doesn't have any biopolymers in it, uh, biopolymer synthesis. Um, but, this, but these catalytic reactions form this network, and you can model the influx of, of fresh molecules and its utilization within the cell in the efflux. We'll come back to that. Inside there are a set of kinetic equations. We need to figure out how to get from the raw data types that I've shown you to this kind of equation. This will be one of the goals of the course. Here you have a velocity on the uh, far left-hand side of the top equation, which is related to a maximal velocity on the, on the uh, numerator, and then a series of linear uh, sums and quotients. Now, some of the terms will be nonlinear uh, 
the, here's an exponent of 4 that enters in because you have one of these cooperativities that gives you that kind of sigmoidal curve that we showed for transistors and will enter into a number of bio biological consequences where that, the steepness of that sigmoidal curve is determined by this exponent, sometimes called a Hill coefficient. But other than that, you'll get, uh, you'll get these simple linear sums and quotients, and we'll come back to that. What actually constitutes these networks? I want you to feel less limited than, than you might get in a simple textbook. So a simple textbook def definition of a catalytic enzyme-catalyzed process, you might have A is a, sub is a substrate that turns into B as a product. This is a process that A could go to B spontaneously, but in the presence of enzyme, it goes faster. Or it could be that for all intents and purposes, A never turns into B. Uh, it's so slow that you need this enzyme here to even detect it. The enzyme will form a complex with A. This could be a non-covalent complex or a covalent one. It then produces a covalent change in A, and it becomes bound, an enzyme bound B. B is released. Enzyme E is regenerated. And so in a certain sense, in this process of turning A to B, E is not consumed. But let's think about an increasingly important class of biochemistry, such as signal transduction, where the enzyme now has a new role. It, has a, it changes places with a substrate. It becomes a substrate. The E now is a substrate in which a small molecule, ATP, which might have been the A up here, um, co combines with the E, and the E could either uh, catalyze its own phosphorylation or in contact with another enzyme. But in any case, it becomes covalently modified to produce uh, a phosphorylated enzyme, a phosphorylated protein. And then the ATP is regenerated by a simple enzymatic process. And so in a certain sense, formally, it's very similar to this process, except you now flip the enzyme to the substrate. ATP is not consumed, or you know, the small molecule is not consumed, the enzyme is consumed. So think of these things, these networks, as symmetrically as you can. Try not to, to get too embedded in the, the names, uh, you know, this is enzyme, this is substrate, and think more about the concepts. The concept here is some things are consumed and some things uh, are catalytic and regenerated. So, again, we are going to integrate these metabolic processes we were talking about in the last couple of slides with the information uh, flow, which was the, the topic of central dogma, in order to get uh, functional genomics, which measures those information molecules mostly and produces uh, quantitative modeling. Um, you need to have the qualitative models to know what's connected to what. You need to have the raw data as illustrated in slide 41. Again, uh, to remind you, the source of quantitative data here, you can measure RNA or proteins or peptides uh, in the mass spectrometry, RNA and the arrays um, connected to the DNA provided by the DNA sequencing. I warned you that, uh, that one of the gene ontology data type uh, sources of data was sequence an electronic sequence annotation by sequence similarity. I want to elaborate on this warning uh, with this slide um, where we say we, we have various justifications for looking for distant homologs. Examples of gene products which are related uh, by, on that ultimate pedigree tree of life by very long distances. It's been a long time since those things were present as a common ancestor. And we want to find those because they help us 
limit the number of hypotheses that we need to test whenever we find a new molecule. If we can connect it to another molecule, however distant, then we don't have to, we feel that we don't have to test every possible hypothesis. We just have to test that little narrow one. But what happens when we do that? Um, in the, let's say instead of some distant homology where we have, say, 20% amino acid identity, you line up the sequences by methods that we'll talk about later, and you have 20% uh, of the positions that are the same, or even less, it can sometimes be meaningful. Um, but how good is that? There's going to be some kind of curve that relates how close two proteins are with the probability that they will have the same biochemical or cell biological or genetic function. And here's some worst case scenarios. And I don't mean to represent these as typical, but to, but to get you doubting again so that you don't trust anything. 100% uh, sequence identity. This should be a best case scenario, but it's not. Uh, the enolase enzyme, which catalyzes a carbon metabolism in most cells, when it's expressed at high levels in a vertebrate, like our friend, this uh, uh, marine tortoise, the turtle, uh, you have, it turns into the major eye lens protein. And actually this is true of most vertebrates. They have some kind of enzyme, like a glycolytic enzyme, which is overproduced and, produ and aggregates and makes a clear lens um, morph morphologically interesting feature, which just focuses light. Completely new function by all those definitions of function. No longer does the enzymatic activity, does an optical activity instead. Another example where you have 100% sequence identity, not something really distant homologue like 20% or 10%, but 100% sequence identity. Thyrodoxin, which is involved in redox reactions involving sulfhydrols and other things, uh, in the right context with other proteins, it can now be part of a DNA polymerase, which when it gloms onto the DNA, it goes really without stopping with thyrodoxin, but it falls off if thyrodoxin isn't around. That's not a redox function, completely different biochemical function. But like I say, there will be a curve. Sometimes there will be very great uh, hypothesis limitation that can come from very distant relatives. These are uh, another example, more examples of the uh, quantitative data that we will use to get hints at relationships among genes that, that go up and down together um, that form the basis of asking what is function not based just on sequence homology, but based on a variety of quantitative data such as uh, the RNA data in microarrays. This is uh, three more ways of looking at how we define function. Function definition number one is the effects of mutation on fitness. This is in a certain sense the, what this organism cares about the function of a gene product. Is how is it how many grandchildren am I going to have? That's what it cares about. And that's what shaped the function over time. And so if we're going to understand any of, the other or any of our other definition of functions, we have to at least give some attention to what shaped it over billions of years. And over many different environments, we need to have some feeling for the ecology of these organisms. The second definition is the more commonly used one, which is uh, what is actually the, its function in a machine-like sense, in the cogs and the wheels, how does it function uh, structurally? What's the three-dimensional structure? What's the mechanism? The third function is more forward-looking, not what good has it been to, to organisms in the past, but what good can it be to us in the future or to organism, other organisms in the future? 
This may not involve uh, re reproducing the organism, making copies of it. It could be that there's some other uh, engineering goal or objective function. When we say that we've proven something, we've proven a biological hypothesis, what we mean is, given the assumption, it's a statistical statement, that the odds of the hypothesis being wrong are less than 5% of the time. Keeping in mind hidden hypotheses and multiple hypotheses. In genomics, it's all too easy to collect a lot of data, and therefore, when you mine the data, you can make a lot of hypotheses, and you test them, and you, find, you will find thousands of things which by themselves would be significant at the 5% level, sort of the standard statistical test. Um, but you've got to uh, correct for the number of hypotheses you implicitly or explicitly test. We'll, we'll mention this time and again in specific cases as we go forward. The systems biology manifesto that I mentioned earlier um, said, had this little loop where you would ge generate perturbations and test things and so forth. But an alternative way, rather than doing additional experiments, is to, if you really have bought in fully into the system biology and you really have all the components and a systematic perturbations, then you might be able to test a hypothesis generated by data mining one data set by going into another data set. You need to ensure that they are independent and you need to ensure that the hypothesis uh, itself came from the first data set and not the second when you go out and test it. But that would be a pure data mining uh, loop, system biology loop. Now, uh, just like what we, when we say we have a proof, you should be distrusting of anybody who says, I have an absolute proof. What they really mean is a statistical uh, statement. So too, when someone says, when they refer to the quality of their data is this is the answer uh, at the you know, raw data level, or um, what they really mean is that, they're, that they have some error level that they can quantitate. And if they, if you should be especially distrustful if someone doesn't uh, attempt to give you any feeling for that. Uh, not to say that everybody that gives error bars or, or error estimates is, is to be trusted, but you get the idea. So for DNA sequencing, there's a standard of practice that uh, was not always such, but uh, a, a meeting in Bermuda, hence called the Bermuda, Bermuda Standards. This is where this is the best place to establish standards. Uh, <laughs> is 99.99% uh, is, uh, accurate. You can see they have very high standards in Bermuda, and that, but that's that's across the genome project. Um, and you want to have these are aspects that I think we got from genomics. In addition to the raw data, we got kind of an attitude. And the attitude is we can start looking at whole systems again, uh, less on the individual gene hypothesis-driven uh, standard NIH uh, grant proposals that predated the genome project. Now you can do less hypothesis-driven, you can do data mining, and so on. We're, we've also inherited the concept of automation to modeling and completion. Completion is something which still is not redu reduced to practice for functional genomics, but it has been reduced to practice for sequencing, and there is hope that we can, we can approach it for functional genomics. Be careful using the word impossible. <coughs> there certainly are things that appear not to be cost-effective at any given moment, but, uh, but technology is moving quickly enough. Remember those uh, greater than exponential curves in the last lecture. Um, there are technologies arriving that make things uh, suddenly become cost-effective. And so, and that's a particularly important uh, warning when, when you design a computational method that will uh, 
compete with an experimental method, the experimental method suddenly becomes cost-effective, then you need to uh, revise your computational goals. We have types of mutations that we've talked about. You have a null mutation, for example, phenylketonuria, which is uh, tested in newborns, uh, uh, in almost all newborns that are born in the United States, and certainly Massachusetts. Um, this, this is a very serious source of uh, mental retardation, completely wiping out that gene. Small dosage effects, like a 1.5-fold effect that we talked about in trisomies, like uh, Down syndrome, are important. You have conditional mutants, classically temperature sensitivity of a mutation, uh, meaning the protein unfolds, or more re uh, recent enthusiasm for chemicals, uh, a mutation which depends upon a chemical for uh, producing its phenotype. You can not only have these things that affect dosage or condition or uh, uh, complete knockout, you can have a new function that's obtained for changing the ligand specificity or changing the aggregation of a protein. Here in the background are how, the, how a change in the hemoglobin, which normally transports oxygen, can change the morphology of a cell and hence the function in transporting oxygen. I just want to end on two slides on, the, on how you can represent the, uh, the uh, competition among cells or among organisms, uh, which represents the Darwinian function, function number one, a few slides back. Here you have mutants in a population, selection axon populations, and mutations are tagged by definition by their nucleic acid. Uh, if you can, if you can uh, change the, if you can use the tags, you make a pool of such mutants, either naturally occurring population, and when these pools are subjected to selections, natural or comp complex or simple or in the laboratory, you can now read out these tags uh, in, many, in many of the quantitative ways we talked about, electrophoresis, mass spectrometry, arrays, so on. And, these, and as you go through more uh, rounds of selection, you will, get, you will eventually pick the winner, which is the, the most highly selected of the uh, mutations, the winner. Uh, or you might have a mixture if you go through a very limited number of rounds. This will follow the exponential curve that we had here, whether it's exponential decay or exponential growth. You, will, you can have a very subtle difference in growth due to the function of that mutated um, gene product. But that, that, is gr that, that small, say, 1% turns into complete all-or-none replacement uh, if you have enough generations. This is the awesome power of the exponential that we talked about last time. Okay. And this, in the real world and also in the laboratory, you can think of this as going over a variety of environments, E, over different times. So each, the time you spend in each of these different environments is a, is a, it has a, you know, some unit uh, that happens in natural environments. You'll, have, you'll spend, say, more time in one condition than another. And the selection coefficients are a simple sum, and this exponential gives you the ratio of the organisms. Here's some uh, references on this, and I urge you to take a look at these uh, where, you, where actual experiments have been done uh, getting these, and we'll come back to this later in the course. Okay, so uh, this is the, the end of this uh, lecture number two. Thank you very much.
Pues fue. 